This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magnin. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumoblet. And our topic this week is... It is the third annual iOS deployment target, and this year we will be talking about iOS 12. Cool. Um, but first, I have some follow-up and an administrative note. So the first thing is, on the last episode, at the end of the episode, we announced that we were going to do an episode sometime in January about uh, Apple TV Plus's The Morning Show, and we are announcing today that we're going to be releasing that episode on January 18th. So if you're interested in watching the morning show, uh, so you can follow along with the episode, that is your deadline, uh, or you're going to have to leave the episode lying around your podcatcher for a while. Uh, on that note too, I know Yannick and I will mainly focus on the morning show, but like I said in the last episode, I might go on some tangents about other ones. Uh, the only one I have really in mind is Dickinson. So uh, maybe be ready for that also. But like 95% of the episode will focus on the morning show, just for sure. Yeah. Uh, next up, I just have one item of follow-up, and this is something that I was very happy to find in the Alexa app this week when I opened it up. Um, as we mentioned on the uh, Alexa uh, sort of review episode I did and then a, a home a smart home buyer's guide that I did later... Um, I'm a big fan of Alexa routines, and one of the main issues I had with Alexa routines in the past is that they tended to only show in a list by the name of their trigger. So if you had like th three or six different routines that kick off at 6 a.m. every morning, then you would have six items that would say every day at 6 a.m. in your list, and you would have no idea which is which. Uh, but now you can name Alexa routines, so that is Ooh. great. So I went in there, and I renamed all my existing routines, and now I know what things are off when they're off and what things are on when they're on, which is great. Um, like, if you have different sets of routines that you have on when you're on trips and others that are when you're not on trips, there are others that don't matter uh, they're just like manual triggers or whatever. You can make it really clear just by naming them correctly. So, um, very useful tip if you're a heavy user of routines. And I also did something pretty interesting to work around one of the limitations with Alexa's timer system, which is, um, when I do laundry, usually I say like 30 minute timer for the washer and 40 minute timer for, uh, 45 minute timer for the dryer. And one of the issues with that is that when the timer is finished, it will ring only on the echo that I asked it for and not the other ones, which means if I'm in my room and I started the timer in the kitchen, which is usually the case because that's the room I walk into when I get back from the laundry room, I have to run out and go specifically yellow that echo so that the alarm stops, which is annoying. And a thing I do occasionally is like I'll start the dryer and go out to go buy groceries. And if there's a long line at the grocery store, I won't be home in time to turn it off, uh, to turn the alarm off. And the alarm is not only very loud, but it is also <laughs> going to keep repeating indefinitely. Oh, uh, no. So I don't want to annoy my uh, neighbors. So I actually found out that you can sort of hack around this with the routines by making a two or three step routine. So the first thing I do in my routine is wait 30 or 45 minutes, the length of the thing. Second thing I do is I can tell it to make an announcement on all echoes. So that is the thing I do. I can just tell it like say washer cycle done on all my echoes and it'll just happen in sync, uh, in sync when it's time for it to happen. And then just in case I'm not at home, I have it also uh, send a notification to every device I have with the Alexa app, which is my iPad and my iPhone. So if I'm out, I still get a notification that my washer, washing is done or whatever so that I know if I'm over time and then when I get back home, I can go get laundry out of the machine. So really useful little hack that uh, I put together. So yeah, there's a bunch of little cool things you can do like that with routines. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things that I'm seeing coming out of HomeKit automation as well, uh, especially with the advent of the whole shortcuts thing, uh, which we'll probably have to talk about in another episode, because right now I'm not really interested in switching ecosystems at all. Um, but HomeKit automation has definitely caught up to where Alexa routines were. And Alexa routines, I don't know if it's just because I'm in Canada or whatever, but it feels like the evolution of that whole system has slowed down significantly. And we get like one or two yearly updates, usually around like the the new Alexa event uh, that they have every fall and then another time at the release of those products in around December. Um, and that's not very many updates. And I was expecting it would continue with the same cadence that we had in the earlier years of Alexa. And I'm sure that in the next few weeks, I would have some of my personal opinions about 
some of the topics you just mentioned, just to kind of tease it about, I won't say too much, but uh, I might have a like, speaker assistant coming in my life, and that's what I'm about to say. Cool. Uh, so we can move on to your main topic. Good. Like I said in the intro, uh, tonight's episode is going to be the third annual Deployment Target episode. And the goal of this episode is are to be released a couple of weeks or month or so, depending on uh, which year, after the uh, latest iOS release. Uh, the, yeah, the latest iOS release. And the goal of them is to remind developers of features that were available in the past OS that maybe because of the new release, you bump up your minimum OS uh, deploy uh, target. And that's and those features now can be start uh, be used freely without being uh, garden. So, if you are lucky, um, and this year you drop support for iOS 11, it means that now you can fully take advantage of iOS 12 features. If you're a less lucky developer, you might drop uh, iOS 10 this year, sadly, and you still need to be stuck with iOS 11. So, I invite you to go uh, listen back to episode 98, excuse me, I mixed the numbers, which is on iOS 11, new features. And if you're really, really, really unlucky and you just drop iOS 9 support, I invite you to uh, go listen again to episode 72, which is about iOS 10 new features. So yeah, so tonight I will be talking about some of the niceties that is included by supporting iOS 12 and up on uh, your iOS app. And the first one I want to discuss is NS Secure Coding. And this one is not really kind of a like a niceties, but it, it, you will say it's kind of a common theme with iOS 12, I feel, this year. Um, so the idea that uh, NS, Secure, NS Secure Coding comes from first NS Coding, and NS coding is more or less the cocoa way to serialize object so they can be saved in a format that can be read later. And I think the best way to, uh, to the best usage of it is really to save or serialize an object so you can save it in a file on disk to save some maybe user preferences. And then once your apps get restarted, you can read that file deserialize this file and then put it back into objects into memory uh, without an itch. So uh, Apple with uh, its Cocoa framework uh, added a format, let's put it this way, that is specific to NS coding and you can uh, you can encode primitive, you can encode your own types, you uh, and especially if they support they conform to the protocol called NS coding. Uh, and of course, for free, uh, a lot of the types in the framework, and the states, uh, and the string, and its URL, and the likes are supported for free. One of the main downsides with that first pass of NS coding is that if somebody was to alter your payload, let's say again, you save it on disk and then either the payload gets corrupted or even worse, uh, another process figure out that you're saving uh, an S coding based uh, file at a specific location on disk, they might maliciously uh, modify it so that the next time your app reads it, it might uh, decode a different object and then might create some security issues or at least create some crashes in your app, but the worst case could create security holes. And for that, Apple introduced NS Secure Coding, which is a way. So it keeps the same functionality about encoding and decoding, so serializing and deserializing objects. Uh, but as a user of those APIs, you would say, oh, I'm expecting to decode this object. Let's say you, you've saved uh, my user preference object. So when you encode it, uh, of course, it knows its own type. But when you decode it, in that specific location in your code base, you would say, hey, here I'm expecting at this file path to have uh, an archive of this object on disk. And once I load it into the uh, a decoder, I'm expecting to get an object of my user preferences. And if you get anything else, 
like return an error or in even some cases in the past it was like throw an exception just to make sure that my product or my app doesn't get so it was a bit weird because um the like the minimal effects was like you get a crash still because you might be throwing an exception if you and if you were not ending link correctly it might end up in your program just crashing but now, especially with the advent of Swift, they kind of Swiftify some of these APIs and it is safer in Swift to just return errors and null errors than just throwing exception because in Swift, sadly, you cannot catch those exceptions as with Objective-C. So there's new uh, modernization of these APIs. The main issue with iOS 12 is they requires you to use those new APIs regarding NSSeeker coding. So they really force enforce you. So they remove all the encoding and decoding that were not secure. And they're not enforcing you. And even by default, when you would encode something, it would require uh, secure coding by default. Also, they remove the API that wouldn't allow you which type, which classes or types of objects you were expecting. Now they would force you with new APIs to use those endpoints. And that is one of the first thing you'll encounter while you bump up the uh, I the deployment target to iOS 12, which brings me to a funny story about exactly that one. Um, so we did that a couple of uh weeks ago, like a couple of months ago, where like mid September, I would say. Um, and I was the person that did that uh for the app I'm working on. So of course, make sure that uh, we update all the APIs. And one of the type of objects that we were archiving and uh, unarchiving on disk was um, a NS predicate. And the job of that NS predicate was just to remember your sorting or no, it was a sorting. It was a sort descriptor, excuse me, because it was to remember like which way you would sort a list. And that was a list of item. And let's say you want to sort them like from A to Z and not Z, uh, Z to A, we would store that on disk. The main issue with specific object, uh, sort descriptor is one, and S predicate is also another one, um, is that yes, they allowed you to be, uh, decoded and like, and then validated, even if you use NSQL coding, but they've added more check on those clacks to say like, confirm that the content of this NS predicate is what you expect it to do. So let's say you have a predicate or even like a filter that says like sort this field like from A to Z. Um, they want to make sure that when you unarchive it, you load it into the object that it is still says like sort property A like ascending or sort property B descending and that somebody was not too clever and then realized, oh, maybe if I try to change this, uh, the column name for your database that you would end up executing something that you were not expecting. So there's a specific call, uh, which I forgot to take note of, but it's the kind of like you, you, there's a call on the object really to say, uh, Hey, I've, I've audited this object now that I have a real object. And you can just like assume that you can be, uh, run in the system. And of course, because we were using core data, uh, when we were passing this object to Core Data, Core Data was doing that validation down uh, down the line, and uh, because we wouldn't call this uh, this method, which would say yes, this object has been valid, vetted and validated by us, uh, it will literally crash our app. So yes, it's it's fun. We released a big update. We released a uh, new support for. Uh, for the new, uh, f we, we, it was part of a big update and it was like new UIs. And, um, it's always fun to say like, Oh, everything went well, except that small crasher when, uh, when the user changed their, uh, default, uh, predicate. And the method I was looking for is called allow evaluation. And it's really to say that it's on NS predicate, uh, uh, NS predicate. And it is really to say to force, add uh, the quick description is to say, force a predicate that was secretly decoded to allow a evaluation. So when you were passing this object to Core Data, Core Data was uh, looking internally if we did allow the evaluation, uh, and we did not, so it would crash. 
And that was a fun bug, uh, part of our uh, recent big update uh, that I've discussed in previous episode in September. So it's always fun to have a bug. The bug was not too bad, it was not affecting too much users, but you know, it's like big update of the app, everything went well except the local crusher, more or less. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a good lesson. We learned about that, and there's like rare objects uh, in the system that has this method called allow evaluation. Yeah, and it's a good lesson for basically any language with um, s- sort of this like indirect reflection and dynamic call behavior. Um, like we have it with sort descriptors as well in C sharp, where like if you just pass a column in uh, in the query string of a URL, you can just like start calling random methods that you're not supposed to on the object because they're also technically properties of the object. And like, if you don't have careful checks in place to make sure that you're only like filtering for call up names and stuff like that, and not actually like of super secret admin method that nobody's supposed to call on the object, but this person magically knows about, like you have to be careful about these things in every language, not just Objective-C, although Objective-C is a mighty good language. uh, And I guess, technically swift which inherited the baggage of objective c in certain places uh you have to be careful with it because like the entire message passing architecture of objective c is heavily abusable by these kinds of things yeah and it is not really clearly written in the documentation but like the two objects that i have uh i forgot to say the second one i did mention sort descriptor that was not sort descriptor i didn't misspoke uh, it is an ns expression so ns right. and NS yeah. expressions are like big tenant feature of core data and let's see if somebody malicious modify your expression or your predicate they might Making, they might be making your app do something completely different and executing on your core data stack. So you might be by accident leaking even data or showing data that the user shouldn't see because it's more internal data uh, for your process and not the real data. Yeah, those two classes are definitely the most abusable out there. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah, uh, lesson learned. This, and it's funny because this method allow evaluation exists, exists since iOS 7. Uh, and it is really because of the advent of uh, NS Secure Coding uh, that came in iOS 6. But now in iOS 12, NS Secure Coding is, is required. And if you use NS, if you archive or archive uh, NS predicate instances or NS ex, uh, expression instances, don't forget to look at the content and also call allow uh, evaluation. Like I said, before starting uh, talking about NS Secure Coding, I felt that this year there was a different team and it is about deprecation. The first example is uh, moving away from secure coding, uh, from NS coding to full NS secure coding. The second one is an old fan of ours that is finally going away, UI WebView. Officially in iOS 12, uh, UI WebView is deprecated. The class is there, but now it is marked with the deprecation attributes. Uh, since the in, since the launch of WK WebView in iOS uh, 8 or for Mac friends uh, Mac OS 10.10, which I forgot what was the name for 10.10. I guess it's Yosemite. Yeah, something like that. I I lost track after like 10.8. <laughs> yeah, because 10.8 is Mountain Lion, and then after that it's Mavericks, and then it's Yosemite. So yeah, something yeah. like that. So uh, all of this to say is. With iOS 10, uh, iOS 8 and macOS uh, 10.10, they added a WK web view, which wa- which is a modern way to include a web view or a web component inside your iOS application. Uh, UI web view have been kind of soft deprecated. It was written like in big quotes in the documentation. Uh, please, please, please stop using UI web view. Um, please move to duplicate WebView, but now Apple is forcing the users to do it. And since iOS 8, uh, Apple has added a lot of functionality uh, to duplicate WebViews, uh, so that I wouldn't be surprised that it's to make a safe API to do the same things that UI WebView was allowing you to do. The main difference between those two is first, WK uh, WebView is uh rendering as closely as possible the content the same way that the Safari app itself would uh, 
before the advent of the wiki web view, Safari on iOS will always have an advantage compared to UI web view. Uh, I think it's, it, well, I, I forgot which, is that the GS just in time that was allowed in Safari, but was not allowed in UI web view? Yep. The Nitro, the Nitro JIT was only enabled in Safari, the application. And then if you had a UI web view, it was disabled to avoid having exploits or whatever take over the process. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and a lot of these reasons why some features were enabled in Safari.app and not in UI WebView is because is mainly because UI WebView runs in the same process as your app. It's a component in your app. Of course, it uses the same process. WK WebView uses inter-process communication to allow your app to have a WebView, but this WebView runs in a different process, the same way that in these days, most browsers, each tab run different processes. So if something happens with that process and that tab, your old browser doesn't go down. Or even if something, like if there's, if something is wrong with that process, security wise, let's put it this way, uh, only this process is affected and not the whole, uh, browser process. And the other thing that the last nail in the coffin for UI with you is I think it was the Spectre uh, vulnerability that UI WebView is like directly affected by uh, that. So, um, but I know uh, the main reason why I'm hesitating is because I'm not sure if Apple really went like like full public about saying yeah that like one of those uh, like processor vulnerabilities that got. Uh, that got uh, discussed in the past few years. Uh, I know one of them was more affected with some of those JavaScript uh, libraries that would run in the browser. And I know uh, UI with you is affected by those. So all of this to say is if your app was a web app or if your app uses a lot of web views, um, you would need to start either Pragma, Mark, all the things if you're still in Objective-C land, which is just ignore the warning more or less. But if you're on Swift and you cannot do that, uh, you are more or less forced to live with warnings or move away from it. And I feel these days that, especially the, that all the features that you might were doing, a lot of the things people were doing with, uh, UI WebView was to kind of create a bridge bit between their native app and, and the web page itself is made way simpler with a WK WebView. You have some of those like user message that you can instantiate so your web app can send signals to your native side of the things. And of course, as with uh, UI WebView, your native side can ask the WebView to execute some JavaScript. So uh, you can do that. Of course, uh, new features on iOS 13, like the desktop, uh, the desktop browsing experience on iPad OS that was not, uh, available in UI WebView. Of course, it is available in WK WebView. So you are missing on also some of the recent improvements to, uh, web browsing in iOS by not using, uh, UI WebView. Uh, yes, by not using UI WebViews. By not using WK WebViews. Yes, by not, see, I'm all confused now. But yes, by not using a WK WebView. The main reason I was confused is because I was thinking about my next sentence, which was if you were using UI WebView just to use it as a, it was a bit rarer uh, that I've seen that, but I've still seen people do that to just build a custom browser so you don't have to redirect your user to Safari. Uh, SF Safari View Controller now will replace it and is way better than just you trying to build a browser using UI WebView. So I feel these years that Apple is covering both bases why you would need a UI web view, uh, either to build kind of like an hybrid app approach or to just like have your own fake Safari inside your app. Now you have two components that are different, but optimized for their own purposes. And even on top of that, if you needed to do some like kind of two-factor authentication or like single sign-on and you need to show a web view. Uh, there's a specific component that I'm not, I forgot to take note of, but it's AS web something, something, which is to uh, do the, the single sign-on requests um, that now Apple also added in the recent OSs. Yep. If you're interested in hearing more about that, you can go listen to the episode we did uh, about WWDC this year, I think, 
which talks about all of these things as part of the desktop uh, iPad changes. That is true. They uh, revisited a lot of it because they had to revisit that topics, uh, that topic for the modification I had to do for uh, desktop browsing on iPadOS. My last deprecation topic that I want to mention is one that Yannick and I discussed. I'm not sure we discussed on the podcast about it, but I know Yannick and I discussed a lot uh, because Yannick is hanging out in game forums. Oh, and no. A lot of people are complaining about this since last year. And yes, it is the deprecation of, especially for iOS, OpenGL, yes, and on the Mac, OpenGL and OpenCL. So yes, um, Apple announced last year. So if you're a game developer, I'm sure if you're a game developer, you've heard about this and you've, um, hopefully you've done this transition. If you're a game developer, you've probably given up listening on our podcast a long time ago with how much I bitch about them. <laughs> that too. But if you're still with us, first of all, I am happy and, uh, I am quite happy that you're still with us. But yeah, uh, if you're no longer with us, uh, you're not hearing my voice, but if you're all with me uh, and this is news for you, I am sorry in advance. Um, so I think I'll still, I'll, I'll keep this topic light because I am not a game developer and my limit, uh, my knowledge of OpenGL is quite limited. But all of this is to say is Apple more or less says metal is better than OpenGL because it's our own shit. Uh, there's a bit of that from when I've watched some of the, the, the videos of 2018. Well, it, it's not just that. It's that I think like the entire gaming industry kind of agrees that lower level frameworks like Metal, like Vulkan, like um, I forget the other one. Uh, these frameworks are just significantly better than OpenGL because they give you much more direct access and there's much less overhead in making common things happen than what OpenGL enabled. So I think like pretty much everyone agrees that it's the correct thing to go towards these more modern APIs. Where people disagree is whether Metal should exist or Apple should have used something that already exists like Vulkan. So th hmm. there's that angle to it. Oh, DirectX 11 was the other one I was thinking of. Um, because DirectX 11 has a lot more in common with Metal than it does with previous DirectX. And then there's the whole decision of, well, should this new modern API be additive to existing graphics APIs like OpenGL so we could maintain compatibility, or should it be a replacement like Apple does? Um, and this is a topic that will come up on my next episode, so I don't want to bring it up too much. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, these are sort of the angles that come out a lot. Um, and I mean, this is also tied in with closely with the recent deprecation of 64-bit on iOS and on the Mac and all of that stuff. And that might be what the next episode I'm doing is, so I'm not going to spoil that either. Um, but I, it, it's all very closely related to that kind of philosophical disagreement with Apple more so than it is with anyone thinking that this is actually a bad move technically. True, and uh, I kind of agree. I feel that we'll have to we will need to discuss those uh, philosophical debates. But uh, for today, what I wanted to mention is, yeah, if you are a game developer living under a rock and you're still writing OpenGLES code from iOS, uh, your days are counted and by a lot. Well. Actually, there is a loophole, which is the loophole that everybody points out whenever I make whatever argument about OpenGL, and that is WebGL still exists. Oh, true. So go make fucking web app games, I guess. <laughs> Couple, uh, uh, two quick notes. Uh, in iOS 12, uh, Apple added a lot of uh, performance shader for machine learning. I'll come back a bit later on machine learning, but that was... Uh, a quite interesting note about Metal and its performance shaders. And the other thing that they've kind of quote unquote proud of about Metal is that it supports all iOS devices since 2013 and all Mac devices since 2012. And they show a slides of kind of this like Apple family portrait. And you see like it includes like the iPad, the, the MacBook Air and the Mac mini, like and devices that have like literally shitty GPUs. And their pitch is kind of to say that they're not saying, Hey, we have shitty DPUs on our, on our desktops and laptops, but it's like metal is optimized for 
all the GPUs we put on our devices. So it is the language to have the best performance or like it's the excuse me the lower level framework to have the best performance with our gpus included in our devices i i want to jump in here because as i i think i'm a bigger mac gamer than you i think that would be fair yes. to say okay yeah it is fair to say like i play zero games on the mac no that's true i played your game on the mac this year oh great that uh, super metal optimized um <laughs> but that's a joke by the way um but uh, I had the chance to actually play uh, a couple Blizzard games that have a, they let you choose which renderer you want to use. So you can use OpenGL or Metal. Uh, and the performance difference is significant if you switch to Metal, um, on my MacBook Pro in particular. Like Heroes of the Storm just like goes, I think my frame rate doubles if I switch to Metal, uh, at the same resolution, which is quite a significant boost. Um, so, like part of that is like we've always known Apple's OpenGL implementation is kind of shit anyway, <laughs> so like it doesn't help. Uh, but like I can't argue with the results. It's very good performance even on like MacBook Pro 13 inch base GPU, right? Which is more or less Intel uh, Intel integrated GPUs. So like I said, I have limited opinion on this. Uh, but as a kind of, and for this as a user, uh, the fact that they were pretty on form saying like metal works on the mesh on, it was in 2012, uh, it was in 2018, excuse me. So like five years old plus devices, Apple devices is quite a good, uh, selling point for them. And let's be honest. And I, the, I, yes, some of, no, yes, uh, some iPads cut. Uh, will, won't support iOS 13, but from Moave to Catalina, uh, the number of devices that went away, I think is quite minimal too. So it does mean that the same set of devices that were still running Moave are still running Catalina. And it means that now we're talking about six, six years plus devices are able to run middle code quite uh, performantly. As someone who has very, very basic experience with both OpenGL, ES, and Metal, um, one of the big downsides of Metal is how user-hostile it is for people who know very little about graphics programming to begin with. If you're a newcomer to 3D graphics and your first experience is Metal because that's all that's really available to you on uh, iOS, you're going to hate your life. Uh, whereas OpenGL is, it, it makes a lot more sense because it's somewhat higher level to begin with. Uh, and I think there, there are like two easy responses for this, which is first of all, I think Apple assumes that most people who are going to be making games for iOS are going to be using existing game engines and not making their own. Uh, oh, true. Which, oh, yeah, true. it was much easier to roll your own if you were writing against OpenGL because so much more was provided for you than it is in Metal. Uh, and just go play around with it in Swift Playgrounds. If you don't believe me, it's fucked up. Uh, and <laughs> the other thing I was going to say, I forgot. So, uh, but just, just since you forgot, I might make you think, but Apple were pretty upfront in their presentation. It's like metal for OpenGL developers. They were like, you know, in the introduction, if you like, if you were to start a new project today, maybe one of the questions you should ask is not, whether I should write it directly th- uh, with uh, using OpenGL or Metal, is maybe I can just use a gaming in uh, like a game engine like Unreal or Dimension Unreal Dimension. Uh, they mentioned the uh, Unity. They mentioned it. They didn't mention the, the popular ones, and they were like, you know, if you want to use those, those will do the right thing for you. Right, and the thing that I was gonna say, but I f- forgot, which was, uh, SceneKit is Apple's sort of higher level 3D framework which it was not designed for gaming at all originally it was originally designed for weird ass shit like delicious library on the mac i don't know what they were thinking with that um because i don't think very many people other than delicious library actually used it for what it was intended for uh but um they sort of took that and turned it into a higher level gaming a 3d gaming base engine for ios and i think i I don't actually know any games that use it which is kind of frightening uh kind of like uh sprite kit which is really scary to me, um, but it's there. So I guess like if you're starting with iOS programming uh, and you want to make a 3D game, like maybe that's where you should start. The only thing I'd 
sort of explain here is in both Metal's case and uh, Scene Kit, none of that can carry over to other platforms easily. Uh, whereas OpenGL ES, again, was multi-platform and you could easily port, well, more easily port things to Android, for example, or even consoles and stuff like that. And all of what you just said is also a fair point because the slide before the one I was talking about, Apple was like, you know, if you use our systems library, they are like, you can use Metal directly, but a lot, if not most of them are using Metal. They mentioned UIKit, they mentioned Core Graphics, they mentioned like Coramel, ARKit, they mentioned SceneKit, SpriteKit. And they were like, you know, if you need just 2D stuff, we have SpriteKit and that's there for you. Or we have SceneKit if you want 3D stuff, or you can use third party game engines, Unity, uh, Unreal. I, there was a third one I didn't know that they mentioned. Uh, and then at the end, they were like, okay, if you're still with us, it means that, you know, you've evaluated all of these solution and you just want to roll your own or just work with metal directly. So we'll tell you how to work with metal directly as people experience with OpenGL. And it's funny because the, especially in, in that presentation, the, uh, presenter was like, you know, I've been working at Apple for like 20 years. I was part of the OpenGL. I also work on OpenGL in other places. Like I have a lot of uh, OpenGL experience. Now I'm part of Metal team. Metal is so nice. So it's like kind of already done playing that. Come on, you're the Apple guy telling us about Metal. He's like, no, no, no. I hear you. I hear you. Like I've used OpenGL. I know its deficiencies and hear me out why Metal is better. So that was quite funny when he started to introduce himself and then go in this long uh, charade about this. Yep, there are plenty of legitimate reasons to dislike Metal over, over OpenGL, but most of the criticism has nothing to do with those reasons, and it's all philosophical bullshit. Uh, so look forward to that next episode. Good. And that's mainly it for my uh, deprecation strategies. So I want to move to some niceties. I have an honorable mention. And the reason why it's, it's an honorable mention is because we tackle it in our uh, WWDC episode at that moment. And it is the uh, series shortcuts. Uh, that was one of the presentation that Yannick uh, dissected for our WWDC episode for of 2018 introduction to series shortcuts but just as a quick reminders uh ios 12 was all new and shiny with the shortcuts be uh, stuff uh and there was two ways to have shortcuts available to you so if you were a big users of ns user activity which apple is kind of like pushing down your down your throat in the past few years uh you can just enable is eligible and eligible for search and is eligible for pre- and that would make it available for Siri to just predicate and uh, figure out when to show your shortcut to user. But the big, really the big, big push in iOS 12 was the advent of custom intents from SiriKit that you can use and have also uh, extensions. So you can do way more than just the uh, intents that we discussed in great lengths in previous episodes, like messaging apps, uh, payments apps, photo apps, and all of those that were provided by Apple with Apple APIs. And now you can build your own and roll your own, and that is driving that. Um, CV shortcut, while it's a good nicety, it's not some... Because it was so big last year, and still big, uh, don't get me wrong, but it is something that if you haven't adopted as part of kind of your features that you want to add, to, even if you're still supporting iOS 11 at that time and you support 11 and 12, I do feel that this was so big that you wanted to kind of, if available or like if I'm running on iOS 12, like make this available to users because it was so big and it was so big for Apple too that there was a lot of marketing push around it. So if you could put your app and say your app supports it, there was a higher chance of you to getting featured or even getting in some promo shots from Apple because your app is using their latest features that while I can imagine some devs are more pragmatic and waiting for their base deployment target, I wouldn't be surprised that for this exact feature, some people were a bit aggressive and last year they just pumped up quickly to iOS 12. But again, if you did not and now you, it is the time for you and also you maybe were maybe waiting to add a more wait and see approach to those because you don't want to drink the Kool-Aid, which is totally fine. Um, I feel that with 
this year than last year, you do have a good example of where series shortcuts is going. And that might be time to invest in those. So I invite you to go look at it because to me, even if I did not write any, to me, that was like kind of the big temple feature last year for developers. Uh, like in UI kit, I was relooking at like all the diff, uh, even in core data and for what I would like to call like default iOS developers, like people are just like write apps to write apps or not apps that are optimized to a specific Apple framework. Let's say Elf, OwnKit. Uh, I feel that last year was like, it was not that much, especially compared to this year where now we need to make all of our UIs dark and light modes compatible and with the new gestures on swipes, uh, on, uh, on presentations. Feels that this year, uh, I was 12 as a year was a bit slow. So that's why it might be time now to reinvest this time into series shortcuts. Another one related to that is a uh, new functionality in a notification, uh, two important uh, ones. The one that now notification can group uh, not only per app, but per whatever you want. Uh, so you can have multiple threads of notification. The best example is you have one poll of, like one group of notification per, uh, IM thread. So let's say I have a chat with Yannick. I have a chat with Tony. I don't want my notification uh, from my conversation with Yannick to mix with the one with Tony. So I can maybe just look at Yannick one because we're having, uh, like preparation for the podcast. Uh, before they were all grouped under the same application. Now, once the app adds supports, and adding the support is quite easy. It's like you just pass in a string and then the fire, and then the US does the rest for you. And that will create threads for you. So that's quite nice. Uh, and again, something that is easily F, if and def out. Uh, so you could have supported that already. And if you did not, I strongly invite you to do so. A real new niceties now. Um, Last year, Apple introduced a new Swift API. So they talked about a uh, new functionality in Core ML2, but they also said that there were big, two big new things related to stuff that was using machine learning to uh, bring new powers to you. Uh, they talked about the vision framework and they talked about natural languages framework. Um, so natural languages is a framework that will do machine learning on string, on text. It will identify text. Uh, the best example is you can pass it a bunch of text. Uh, and you say this text is in this language and just split it, but all the words. So you don't do the typical, like I have a string, I find all the spaces, I remove all the spaces and I split. No, it will kind of figure out per language what is a word in that language or what is a paragraph and then can give you a split. Also, it can push it even further. You can also tell it, give me all the places in that string. And what I mean by places, let's say uh, the sentence is, Yannick and I spent uh, a lot of time in the last week at in California. We visited San Francisco, we visited the Golden Gate Bridge, then we went to San Jose, we visited the Apple campus. Let's say that's my text. And I, I tell to uh, natural languages, use this text and give me all the places. You, there's a couple, like you can say names, you can say organization, and then it will return you a map of, let's say, California. That's a location. Golden Gate Bridge, that's, that's a place. And with machine learning and stuff, they're really doing good language processing, which is quite nice. And also, uh, it's a new API uh added in iOS 12. So the more you do language processing, uh, the more tools you have access to and natural language is one of them. A quick round of features about uh, CoreML uh, 2. There's a couple of, there's many improvements in CoreML, uh, but uh, the other one I want to mention is ARKit 2. The big thing that happened with ARKit 2 under iOS 12 was the new file format called USDZ uh, that Let's be honest, didn't catch up to be too much, but, uh, this is a file format when you can render, um, elements in 3D and then just like make them run on your phone without having any uh, kind of, uh, augmented reality app. Uh, I think the best example I've seen is when, uh, Panic announced the playdate and you can just have a full size playdate show, shown through your phone on your table or even when Apple does a uh, new, Product launches, 
Yes, the Mac Pro. You could see, quote unquote, in real life, the Mac Pro size in your home using uh, USDZ files from Safari, from the the Apple Store app. Um, so it's a file format to share those AR experiences. And Apple was partnering with Adobe and Disney, and it was funny because there was a big, uh, like a big video announcement with a new app, and I was like. Let's go see what uh, the thing was called, like Project Arrow. And I was like, you know what? Let's go see where it, this is at. And guess what? It has finally shipped. So I was quite surprised that it was still a real as a project from Adobe and that it did ship. Uh, but yeah, there's an, uh, an app called AR. It's like a, the, the letter A and R in a like, typical Adobe Square. Um, so yeah, it seems that it's going somewhere, but, um, again, uh, Coramel, like all of the machine learning and augmented reality, it's not my cup of tea these days. So I'm not the most curious about those. So I kind of look at them like, oh, nice stuff. Uh, another good example of good stuff in the AR kit. Um, they're showing you that you can like, let's say you have a table, uh, you put LM, like AR elements on it. You can now like save this map of everything you've done and then you can share it. So when you uh, either come back, uh, because you kill the app and come back, or you want a friend to see what you've done in your AR world, uh, you can send them this map file and then they can open it and see all the elements at the appropriate location. And that it seems that uh, before that, uh, on AR kit, you had to either roll your own or it was really impossible to do. Um, so that to me was a good feature. I was like, hey, you know, if I have a game and my, the game is like, I can kind of create this kind of AR experience in my living room, especially for a game. Uh, uh, I would like to be able to save it or share with friends. And, and that was one thing that clicked to my mind. Okay, uh, for all my iOS deployment target episode, I always like, if possible, because it's not every year that does that, but I've always has a feature that comes later in the year. And and I should be clearer, not a feature for users, but like an API that is not available in like say the 0.0 release, but that comes out throughout the year. Um, I think it was with iOS 11 that we got the, uh, the SK review view controller, if I recall oh, its name. Oh no. I know you say, oh, oh no, but, uh, that is, I think it was in iOS 11 and I mentioned that. Uh, but all of this to say is this is a good example of uh, features that you can use a- in your app, but that doesn't require the .0 release that requires to move your iOS deployment target to a .2 or, an, or a .3. And uh, no, I was wrong. It was not iOS 11. It was iOS 10, and it was iOS 10.3 with SK Store Review Controller. So this year's for iOS 12, I have an example, and it is an example regarding subscription. So StoreKit, which is the uh, API to have access to store uh, the, the store and all your payment, not payment information, but all your uh, price information and especially for your in-app purchases and subscription, now will allow you starting iOS 12.2 to uh, have offers on them. So it is especially useful for auto-renewable subscription because you can specify a discounted price for them uh, for a specific duration, either for new customers to, to kind of to encourage them to sign up for your subscription or to um, existing subscribers that maybe next year you want them to give a discount or even people that subscribe, stop their subscription and as an incentive to win them back. And I think that's the, uh, looking at documentation, that was the main example that Apple gave. It's like, oh, win back subscriber with this from people that have uh that have subscribed in the past and that you lost or even like to promote them to go to another level maybe they should try that with apple news plus they maybe they should (laughs) maybe they should um and it's funny because they said it because uh, in the past they also had introductionary offers uh they also say that with this new features you can have a user that have accepted the news and introductory offer can also have access to this new offers API. So they've added a couple of classes like SK payment discount, which is to really apply the discount on your transaction, uh, in a store kit 
to allow you to do so. Again, I haven't done too much in-app purchase or uh, subscription code in uh, iOS apps, so my uh, knowledge is limited. But to me, again, without going too much in, around the physical, uh, the, the philosophical discussion around upgrade purchase and all of that stuff, it does show that Apple is is kind of trying to improve uh, subscriptions in a way that is maybe more user friendly. Uh, while also considering that the fact that, yeah, you can have subscription fatigue, so it might be good to uh, have discounts. And especially just maybe for people that, you know, they, they try a couple of months and, and I'm sure they will, especially Apple will see that with uh, Apple TV plus or even Netflix could see that, that people will subscribe for a couple of months, then disappear. So you want to win them back. So you give them a discount or like, like say like 20% off for the next six months as uh, an incentive to come back and then in theory stay with you for more than a year because if they stay if they renew their subscription for year number two don't forget as a developer you your uh the apple's take the apple's cut on it goes from 30 percent to 15 percent so if you can win back some subscriber it is A, good for you, and of course, B, good for Apple, but especially in year two, it is even better for you. And that is it for my list of new features. Uh, as I said in the opening, uh, iOS 12 felt for me it was more like kind of a, a slow release for that. Uh, everything worked fine. You had a couple of like improvements or like cleanup you had to do in your app uh, for what I consider more of a typical normal app. Of course, um, if you listen to my voice and you're like, oh, I have an Elkit app and Elkit changed a lot. It's like, yes, of course. But the goal of these episodes is to, to kind of a baseline. And in some years, when you bump up your deployment target, you have access to a lot of new functionalities. And some of the years, it's slow years. And I feel that next year, when we talk about iOS 13, there's going to be a lot. Uh, there was a lot in iOS 11 and then in iOS 12. Uh, that's where you could feel that the performance year, quote-unquote, is felt. iOS 13 will be able to talk about all the great bugs that your apps can now have because <laughs> you're targeting iOS 13. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. going to be great. That's true. That's true. So before we close out this episode, uh, I just want to tell all of our listeners that have some hot... Ah, to have some happy holidays um, because next time we're going to be talking to you will be from the year 2020. That is true. Happy holidays, everyone. All right. So if you want to see the show notes for this episode, you can go find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 126. That's 126. Or you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. The show is on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I am at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Ukadivya at Lukonoj. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks talking about OpenGL again. Woohoo! No. <laughs>